Welcome to the Unite Church podcast. For more information about Unite Church, visit us at unitechurchak.org. Now, enjoy this message from Rick Benjamin. I won't ask you to raise your hands. How many of you did New Year's resolutions? I'll tell you, my diet started on January 2nd. Then I lost it on January 3rd. So my diet started again on January 4th. It's just a day on the calendar. I know that. But it's a time to maybe make some new patterns. And I looked it up. Top 10 New Year's resolutions. Number three, better finances. Handle my money better. Do a budget. Don't use credit cards so much. Number two, exercise more. Join a gym, rejoin a gym, maybe. And the top time, top number one, New Year's resolution, of course, is eat healthier, get on a diet, and so on. I found out that New Year's resolutions last an average of two weeks. They actually researched this. They actually figured out what day of the year is the day that most New Year's resolutions are broken. Are you ready for this? It's January 12th. So you have two more days. Hang in there. <laughs> If you get past that date, you're above average. Only 8% of people actually achieve their goals in New Year's. That's not very encouraging. Well, one of the Christian New Year's resolutions is read the Bible more or start reading the Bible every day or something like that. And I did that too. I'll tell you one of my stories. I was a teenager for Jesus and when New Year's came around, I remember trying to do those through the Bible in a year reading plans. And so, like five chapters a day, you read the whole Bible in one calendar year. I wanted to do this. So I would start in January 1st, Genesis, wonderful. The book of Genesis, creation, you know, the flood of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, terrific. I'm doing great. The book of Exodus, also wonderful. Moses, the, the burning bush, you know, the plagues on Egypt, the Red Sea, the Exodus from Egypt, terrific. Then in the middle of Exodus, it starts to change. I remember getting to this point. The law, the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle. Okay, then I come to the book of Leviticus. Wow. Wow. I was committed, I tried, you know, but I tell you, as a teenage kid, hitting Leviticus was tough for me. There is one whole chapter on mildew in the book of Leviticus, it's true. There's two chapters on infectious skin diseases, okay, and now as an adult, I understand better what it was all about, it's about living with a holy God, but as a kid, I remember I'd fall behind, like I forgot to read yesterday. So instead of five chapters yesterday, I have to read 10 chapters tomorrow. I can do it. All right. So I try to catch up. And I remember sitting in my house like I had to read 25 chapters of Leviticus tonight, you know, and trying to keep my eyes open, you know, and falling asleep and just finally giving up in defeat. Okay. That wasn't very encouraging either. But now, I'll tell you something. I love the Old Testament. I'm going to say some words today and 
in support of the Old Testament. I'll read some Bible verses about it. Romans 15, verse 4. New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The word Scriptures is the Bible, the Bible's word for itself, actually. The word Bible is not found in your Bible. It's found on your Bible, on the outside. But the Bible calls itself the Scriptures, which means the writings, the written-down Word of God. So when he's talking about this, the only written-down Word of God they had was the 39 books from Genesis to Malachi that we call the Old Testament. And he said everything. See that word up there? Everything that was written down there. To teach us, to encourage us, to give us hope. All those books that we call the Old Testament. Jewish people call them simply the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's another verse like this. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. This verse is talking specifically about the Exodus and the plagues and the Red Sea and, and all of that. And he's saying God wrote those things down for us to be examples to us now from way back B.C. to us living in the last days. Okay. A friend of mine posted recently about how she got saved 50 years ago, and she was in a Bible study where the leader of the Bible study presented Jesus to her, and she got saved that night. Praise God. That's the good news. But she said the Bible that he had, he had literally ripped out the Old Testament from his Bible. Imagine, just, just a little bit of it. Oh, by the way, I want to show you something. I brought this as a visual aid. See that marker right there? That's the marker between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He ripped off maybe three-fourths of his Bible and was teaching only from that one-fourth, which is the New Testament, which is God's Word, which is the Scripture, of course. It wasn't just 50 years ago. A couple of years back, a very important Christian leader in this country made some statements about unhitching our faith from the Old Testament. I'm not going to tell you his name because he's our brother in Christ. He's a great person. And I hope he didn't mean what this sounds like. First century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. Wow. It sounds like almost... That other extreme example of just tear it out. Now, let me be clear about this. I'm very glad I don't live in the Old Testament. Specifically, I'm very glad I don't live under the law of Moses, which God added about 1400 B.C., and that was the law and was God's word until Jesus came. Because if I lived back then, I would have to try to obey not just 10, but all 613 commands in the law of Moses. And by the way, nobody ever did. And many people have tried, except one person did. You know his name. Say his name. Jesus. Only Jesus was the only one that ever fulfilled the law. He said that. In the Old Testament, if I wanted to come to church, I would have to bring an animal to kill every time just to worship God. If I wanted my sins to be forgiven, I had to bring an animal to kill a bird a goat, a sheep, a bull. They'd slash them up and pour out the blood every time. 
I'm so thankful that's over, aren't you? I don't live back there. I would have to come and talk to a man who would represent me before God. I couldn't go directly to God. Not one woman under the law of Moses ever could come into God's presence, ever. My sisters, think about that. And the only men that ever got to do it were these people called the priests. I'm so glad in the New Testament I can just lift up my voice, lift up my eyes and talk to God and know that I'm in his presence without any human mediator or priest between. Who would ever want to go back to all of that? Not me. But having said all that, the Old Testament is the Scripture, the Word of God. It was the only Bible Jesus and the apostles had. Do you know they learned how to proclaim the good news of Jesus and God's grace using only the Old Testament? That's a challenge, isn't it? And they told the world about Jesus. Wow. I love the Old Testament. I do love Genesis and Exodus. I love the stories of David. Samuel and Kings and all those great stories. I name my son after King David. I love the Psalms. Sometimes a Psalm says exactly how I feel right now to God. The Psalms become my Psalms, my prayers, my poetry, my songs to God. I love the book of Daniel, how great he was and all the revelations he had. I love obscure books like Ecclesiastes, that strange sort of discouraging book until right at the very end. When he comes back to where he started, it's all about you, God. And I started telling a story here last Sunday, an Old Testament story, a beautiful little story from the book of Ruth. I love this book too, and I hope you will also. If you want to follow along in your Bible, if you have one, you can find the book of Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. It always sounds like a sentence, Joshua judges Ruth. It's just those, those books of the Bible in order. Or if you want, just sit back and listen, and I'll tell the story to us this morning. I started telling the story last week about Ruth. I called it the power of faithful love. She said to her mother-in-law these beautiful words, don't ask me to leave you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. I'll go and die with you, she said. Far be it for me that anything but death should ever separate us. That's her faithful love. She committed herself to her mother-in-law, and that's kind of where we left off, put a bookmark last time. Ruth, she's a Moabite from a foreign Gentile cursed country. She's the daughter-in-law with the faithful love. Naomi, her Jewish mother-in-law, who was full of bitterness, she said, just go ahead and call me bitter. I'm changing my name. Mara, she said, I'm bitter. God has done this to me. She's bitter and angry because she lost her husband and her two sons. They're back in Bethlehem, but still in a very bad situation. Two widows alone during a famine, we saw, and during that awful time called the days of the judges, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Turn on the TV. You'll see it happening in 2020, anarchy, and so on. Okay. So we're in the middle of all that darkness. We have these two ladies, and it picks up here, Ruth 1.22, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning, the barley harvest. I found out it's about six to eight weeks, and it starts usually in the fall of the year, like September. So Ruth says to her mother-in-law something very interesting. Let me go out to the fields where they're harvesting 
this grain, the barley and the wheat, whatever it was, and pick up the leftovers behind the harvesters. What a thing to say. Well, you think it's what poor people did. Yeah, kind of. Because when they would harvest, they did it by hand, of course. They didn't have big combines and threshing machines and all that. So the harvesters would actually spill stuff and drop stuff. But there was more to it than that. Because, listen to this, way back in the Law of Moses, 300 years before this story, in the book of Leviticus, yes, <laughs> this is what God said. Listen to this, Leviticus 23. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Listen to me. The law of Moses was not all judgment and condemnation and law. Even then, even in Leviticus, God was showing his grace and his mercy on the poor and the foreigner. Let me tell you something. God has always been love. It wasn't like back then he was kind of grouchy and grumpy and he got nicer as time went on. He's always been love. He's always been a God of grace. And you look at it in the law in the Old Testament, he always cared about poor people and widows and orphans and the alien, it's called. I'm going to call these glimpses of God's grace. Way back there in the law, there's a little glimpse. Look at that. Did you see that? There was something different there. It was a glimpse of God's grace. God's grace on the poor and the widows and the aliens, just like Ruth. So a good Jewish man, a good Jewish farmer, would do it on purpose. Don't harvest right to the very corners, not to the edge. Leave some for the poor. I call this message, Ruth, glimpses of God's grace. And watch, that's just the first one. I got a picture of her gleaning in the field. There she is. Gleaning with a G. I told you about my Bible storybooks my parents read to me as a child. This is volume three, and her story is found on page 137. It calls her Gleaner Girl. It's kind of nice. She wasn't a girl. She was a grown-up woman. And there's a picture in here of her gleaning and a man. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to him in a moment. One more quality of Ruth, she was a hard worker. This was hard work. I looked it up. The temperature was 80 degrees about that time of year. Still is in Bethlehem, in Israel. She was out there picking up grain to keep them alive. Are you getting this? This was a famine. They had no other means of support. She's out there working for both of them, fulfilling that love commitment she made in a very practical way. Somebody said it's like picking up aluminum cans in the ditch beside the road as a way to make a living. So she went out, and she found this field. And she began to glean behind these harvesters. And listen to the words. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, B-O-A-Z, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And that name might ring a bell. New Living Translation says, as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. The words make it sound like, it was a coincidence. She just went out there and said, I guess I'll start with this field, just as it turned out. But as it turned out, it was not a coincidence at all. She chose the right field that day. 
Not by accident either. It's another glimpse of God's grace and God's sovereignty. God was behind the scenes pulling some details together. Somehow God in his sovereignty, it means God is the king and he's over all things. He led her to that one specific field. Albert Einstein said, coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. <laughs> I like that. God has his ways of remaining anonymous. And we think things just happen. No, it's God. Now, Ruth doesn't know this yet. She's just out there picking up grain. But this was a very big deal, that field and that man. Boaz, the Bible tells about him, he was a wealthy man. That's good. <laughs> In the story, he shows that he's a kind and a wise man too. By the way, his name Boaz means strength. I like that, strength. You know, later when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, they put two giant pillars in front of that temple. They gave those pillars names, and one of those pillars was named Boaz. Pretty cool namesake, huh? Maybe you should name your baby Boaz. It's a good name. He was a good man because he was like that. He was a pillar. He was a pillar sort of a person, a pillar in that community. So Boaz comes out to the field to check on the harvest, and he sees her, the gleaner girl. He sees Ruth. So he asked about her, who's that? So his guys tell him, that's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Because guess what? This little town, they all knew this story by now. Small town, this is big news, okay? So they all knew, oh yeah, we heard about Naomi and husband died, came back, got this girl with her, okay. So then he tells his workers, leave her alone. I like this. He's protecting her, and she doesn't even know it yet. He's a gentleman. And then he goes and talks to her, and that's that picture right there. She's out there picking up stuff, and here he comes. And he says to her, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. This summer, this is your field. You stay here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And wherever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the well over here. You can drink water with us. She even told, he told her rather, that she could have lunch with them. Wow. This is nice. Okay. So she is very humble. She bows down with her face to the ground. Bless her heart. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you even notice me? I'm a foreigner. Now listen, she was humble. I don't think it was, you know, self-depreciation or false humility or an inferiority complex. She knew who she was. She knew where she came from. So it was a good question. Why are you being nice to me? Why do you even notice me? And then he said this. I think I have these words for you. I've been told all about you. There it is. What you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Beautiful words. Now, God doesn't have wings. We know that. He was speaking in a figurative way about the care and the covering of God. Because he heard what she said. Your God will be my God. She converted. 
With those words and that commitment, she came under the wings, the covering, the protection of the real God. And of course, this is the real key to the whole story. Ruth put her life under God's covering, and now God is beginning to bless her. And she doesn't even know it yet. It's exciting. Now we have that picture of Ruth and Naomi again. I just love that picture of the two of them under that covering, which, again, is like a picture of God's wings, God's covering, you know, God's protection over the two of them. So anyway, after Ruth and Boaz talk, he goes back to the harvesters and he tells them this. Are you ready for this? He says, you guys, when you see her behind you, I want you to drop more. On purpose. (laughs) So nobody else sees it. Like, when she's right behind you, make sure she gets it. Wow, I like this guy. (laughs) He's kind of staying anonymous too, isn't he, in some ways. The old preachers used to call this handfuls on purpose. Handfuls on purpose. So, she didn't know it, but she'd be walking along and, whoa, there's a whole bunch. Okay. (laughs) Look at that. There's some more. Okay. She didn't know those were not accidents either. Those were on purpose. (laughs) The message paraphrase says, pull some of the good stuff out and leave it for her. Some of the good stuff. I like that better. Okay. At the end of that one day, first day, this is is the first day, she gets home and she's carrying, ready for this, 30 or 40 pounds of grain. Imagine like four pounds. 10-pound bags of flour. (laughs) She's bringing this in. And Naomi looks at that, and her little eyes, she said, what happened? You had a good day. (laughs) So Ruth tells her the whole story about Boaz and the field and all the rest. And then Naomi says this, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Do you see something happening right there? Naomi went from Mara, bitter, angry at God, God has ruined me, to in one moment she said, oh, God hasn't given up on us. The message says God hasn't quite walked out on us after all. He still loves us. And she says, you don't know it, my daughter, but that man is a close relative of our family. Elimelech was her dead husband, remember? And then Naomi says, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. K-I-N-S-M-A-N, kinsman redeemer. And here's where the story of Ruth and Naomi begins to change. From a story of loss and bitterness to a story of grace and redemption. Remember that great salvation word about being redeemed? There's a price paid to set someone free, to rescue them from bondage and slavery and all that. This man is a redeemer. I can't get ahead of myself. All right, maybe I should put it this way. Naomi's thinking this is a possible redeemer. It's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. Where does this come from? Guess what? This kinsman redeemer thing also comes from, are you ready for this? Say it. The book of Leviticus. It's true. I should have kept reading. (laughs) 
Guess what these are? In the law, again, glimpses of God's grace. Here we go. Leviticus 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Oh, a relative can buy what has been lost and bring it back into the family. And it's also in Deuteronomy. I think that's up here too. If brothers are living together, now bear with me. This one sounds strange in our 21st century ears. We'll explain. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, we don't do this in the 21st century, and we're all glad probably. But back then, 1100 B.C., a widow was at risk in every way, including her own family name and position in the family. So these laws, again, I promise you, were God's mercy and grace on the poor and the widows. There are other examples of these, too, in the law. One was this beautiful law called the Year of Jubilee. What a great idea God had. Every 50 years, all the debts are forgiven, all the slaves go free, all the property goes back to the original owners. Talk about grace. If you were a slave, you were counting the days. That's right. <laughs> Next year, I'm out of here. <laughs> Do you know there's no record Israel ever once observed the year of Jubilee? Isn't that too bad? But Jesus came and said he was the ultimate spiritual fulfillment of the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Another example is this thing in the law called the cities of refuge. God set up on the map of Israel six centrally located cities where if you were running for your life and somebody wanted to kill you, you could run into that city and you'd be safe. And they would have a judge and a court and sort it all out, but it wasn't okay to kill you. Hey, I want to know where those cities are and where's the closest one to me. <laughs> I don't know if they ever did it. These are other glimpses of God's grace. God has always been loving and gracious. So anyway, through these laws about the widow and the husband and the kinsman redeemer, a widow's life and family and property would be secure. Now, Naomi knew these laws. That's why when she heard that name, Boaz, you can almost hear the gears turning in Naomi's head. Ooh, this is a possibility. <laughs> He's in the family. I know these laws. She knew who Boaz was, or we should say she knew who Boaz could be for Ruth and for her. Ruth, I mean, little old Naomi's excited. Aren't you happy for her? She felt something she hadn't felt in a long time. Hope. Hope. That one day, that one act of kindness from that one man changes that woman's heart. She feels hope. My footnote in my Bible says, when Naomi hears about the day's events, she takes courage. This moment of her awakened hope is the crucial turning point of the story. All it takes is one glimpse of God's grace, and it can change everything. One little thing becomes everything. It's so wonderful. When you just get a glimpse of God's grace and love, he loves me. He knows me. He hasn't lost my telephone number. He still cares about me. Wow. Back to the story. This man could change everything. I'll say it another way. The Redeemer could change everything. 
<laughs> because Boaz himself is a living, walking, breathing glimpse of God's grace to them. And of course, I'll say it now, Boaz is a picture of the ultimate redeemer who is to come. Let's all say his name together, Jesus, of course. I'm going to stop now and talk to you for a moment. I'm going to encourage you and suggest to look for glimpses of God's grace. It's one of the reasons I chose the book of Ruth now. In a dark time, during a long winter, and so many things around us that all seem so negative, open your eyes and look for glimpses of God's grace. I promise you they are there. Even in bitter times, even if you're bitter like she was, God hasn't given up on you. He does love you. He's actually trying to show you if you only see it. I'm going to quote Mr. Rogers. How about that? Albert Einstein and Mr. Rogers today. Okay. We love Mr. Rogers. I loved him. By the way, he was a Christian minister. Did you know that? It's true. And he said this, and it's been quoted a lot lately. Have you noticed? Mr. Rogers said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. And sure enough, you see them. Oh, here comes the firefighters. Oh, good. Here comes the cops. Good. <laughs> How many times do you say, where's the policeman when you need one? Well, when you need one and they're there, you say, thank you, God. Look for the helpers, you know, the medics and the first responders, they call it. Thank God for all the helpers. By the way, if you're one of them, thank you. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. Mr. Benjamin says, look for the helper. With a capital H. Where do you find these glimpses of God's grace? Where do you see the helper? In the Bible, just like we saw. Open your Bible. Start reading God's promises. Read the Gospels. Read about Jesus. Look for those glimpses of God's grace. In your friends, people like Boaz, people like Ruth. You know, why was Naomi not seeing what a great gift she had already in this precious daughter-in-law, Ruth? Look for your friends and their kind words and their expressions of love and support. If someone says, I'm praying for you, say, wow, you are. Thank you. If someone says a kind word, don't brush it off and act like it's not true. Just say thank you and then internalize it and believe it. That's God's grace coming through. When your needs are met, when you get a paycheck, when you put gas in your gas tank, stop and say, thank you, God, this is you. It's true. In those coincidences, those God things that aren't accidental at all, where God chooses to remain anonymous, stop and step back and think, whoa, that was cool. Maybe that was God. And like Naomi, this little spark will happen inside your heart. Ooh, hope. What's that feel like? Hope. Yeah. All these are God. He's dropping handfuls on purpose in front of you every day. You say, look at this, look at this. Guess where it came from? Him. That's right. It's God showing that he's with you and he loves you. And I'll say one more thing. Don't be afraid to let yourself hope again. When you get your hopes up and your heart's broken, it really hurts and it makes you not want to hope again. But if it's God's hope, Romans 5 says, hope does not disappoint. That's right. Like in the story, we'll see. Because these verses are still in the Bible. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
And these words are still in the Bible. Hebrews 13, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It's like God himself has made that vow of Ruth, that vow of faithful love to every one of us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And the very next verse, Hebrews 13, 6 says, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And one more thing, don't forget, the ultimate walking, breathing, three-dimensional, technicolor revelation of God's grace is Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate, not just a glimpse, everything. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And I'll say one more thing. Believe it or not, you could be a glimpse of God's grace to someone else. Today, before we leave here, this week, in your family, at work somewhere, you could be a glimpse of Jesus himself. Last night, my grandson says, I love you, Grandpa. Talk about a glimpse of God's grace. That boy is a gift. I'm driving north on Minnesota the other day. There's Denali. There's Foraker. Beautiful pink. I said, God, that's you. That's a glimpse of God's grace. A friend of mine wrote a song, Lord, you're Denali to me. You are the greatest thing my eyes will ever see. Amen. People say kind words about me at work. I say, God, thank you. They're seeing you in me. Look for the glimpses of God's grace. Look for God's handfuls on purpose. Look for those coincidences that aren't coincidences. They're around you every day. He loves you. He's in your life. He'll never leave you, never forsake you, and let yourself hope again. Okay, we were all like Ruth and Naomi once. Did you know that? <laughs> Not widows. All of us guys say, how was I like those two ladies back then? I'll tell you how. Ephesians 2, remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were all, Mara. We were all out there alone, separate, without hope and without God in the world. Yes. And praise God for Jesus, the Redeemer. And we can all be humble like Ruth was too. It's okay to remember who I really am and where I really came from and say thank you, my Redeemer, for even noticing me and showing me your grace. By the way, maybe you are in this room right now or watching online, Facebook. Maybe you're still without hope, without God in the world. We're sorry. You don't have to keep on living that way. We actually hope you get a glimpse of God's grace right here in us, in these songs, in all these people, in this message even. We hope something's happening in your heart you haven't felt in a long time. Excitement. Hope. God hasn't forgotten my telephone number. He knows where I am. He knows what's happening with me because it's true. Back to the story, and we have to close. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean the whole harvest time. Very smart. <laughs> she did what she was told. We have to put a bookmark here for now. Ruth out there gleaning in the fields. Boaz, kindness to Ruth. Naomi's rekindling hope inside her little heart. Yeah. 
So you have to come back next time to hear what happens next. But here's a little hint. And this is verse 1 of chapter 3 in the message. Listen, Naomi says, maybe it's time to make our move. That's called a teaser. You have to come back to hear where that's going. The law provided grace for the poor to glean those fields. The law provided security for the widows and her family and their property. Ruth found that field. It was God's will. We know that now. Boaz himself, such a kind man. That was God's grace coming through him. Ruth herself, what a star she is, her faithful love, her hard work, her humility, her submission to God. Really, that's where it all came from. When she came under God's loving wings, like he said, when she said, your God will be my God. All of these led to Ruth glimpses of God's grace. And I hope you'll look for them too. Let's all stand. We're going to pray. Father in heaven, again, we pray in Jesus' name. We thank you for all your blessings and all your grace. Thank you most of all for Jesus, who showed us your love for us forever and became our redeemer and set us free. Thank you for the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. All of it is so great. It teaches us and encourages us, and yes, it gives us hope. Thank you for all the ways you show us your love every day and forgive us for missing them and taking them for granted. We just want to get down low like she did and say, we remember where we were. We remember who we are. And we're so forever grateful that you loved us and noticed us and you keep on giving to us over and over again so generously. And I pray for people that are still like we were there without hope, without you in this world. Rekindle that hope inside. Help them believe deep down in their hearts. This could change everything. This is what I need. Let them find you, their Redeemer, too. Bless your people. Help us go now and show your love. And be, yes, vessels of your grace to people in our lives all around us every day. We thank you for all these blessings. We love you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please connect with us at unitechurchak.org. We hope to see you soon.